0: It's Monday, October 21st. I'm Martine Powers. This is an impeachment inquiry update from Post Reports. So it's been almost a month since Democrats announced that they're launching an impeachment inquiry into the president, trying to figure out whether he inappropriately pressured Ukraine to investigate a political rival. So since then... How much more do we know about what happened between President Trump and Ukraine? So we know a lot more.
1: I'm Ashley Parker, and I cover the White House for The Washington Post. We know that there's two main players who are at the heart of this controversy, and it's the president himself who very much was— orchestrating and and directing it and roping in sort of the full might of the federal bureaucracy. And the other person involved is the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who was not going rogue and freelancing, but as Giuliani himself has said, was working at the behest of his client, the president of the United States. And the reason we know this, a lot of this at least, is from basically two weeks of daily closed-door testimony before House committees where witnesses are coming up, they're spending all day there, and When we learn what they say, each new testimony offers at least one big bit of information that generally places the president and Rudy Giuliani sort of squarely at the heart of this throbbing scandal.
0: So let's go back to some of those hearings that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. Who were the people who were testifying at those hearings and what were some of the major things that we heard from people who were in the room when they happened?
1: I mean, basically every single day there was a new testimony and each new testimony seemed to have at least one new bombshell. So three that stand out in my mind are Marie Yovanovitch. She was the former ambassador to Ukraine who was sort of suddenly recalled because Giuliani's cronies ran a smear campaign against her because they felt like she was impeding their financial interests in Ukraine. So that was one of the people who had a pretty interesting testimony. There was Fiona Hill, who was a former top Russia person dealing with the Ukraine on the National Security Council, um, and then there was Gordon Sondland, who was a wealthy hotelier from Portland, Oregon, uh, a, a big Republican donor. He was for Jeb Bush first, um, but basically he'd always wanted to be an ambassador. He then threw his support behind Trump, and Trump appointed him ambassador to the European Union. And interestingly, Ukraine is not part of the EU at all, but Trump had tasked him with Ukraine policy. And so Gordon Sondland was in the mix as well, and and he testified.
0: And so from these three testimonies, what was the picture that emerged from what they had to say?
1: So, again, you had a picture of people who felt very uncomfortable with the way foreign policy was being run. Gordon Sondland, who of the three is probably the one who Trump allies were hoping would be the most exonerating, he's sort of a Trump loyalist, even he said— he basically painted a picture and described a circumstance where he felt like the president created an atmosphere where diplomats and career foreign service officials had no good options. Um, They either had to follow the president's directives, which was to involve his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, in Ukraine policy, something that made everyone very uncomfortable, or they kind of had to abandon their policy goals with Ukraine. And they ultimately chose to do things they felt uncomfortable with and get Giuliani involved. But he sort of described a thing where, you know, everyone felt a little queasy about this, but the directive had come directly from the president and we felt we had no choice. And Gordon Sondland is also interesting because it had emerged that in a series of text messages another diplomat had said, I feel very uncomfortable with withholding aid to Ukraine in exchange for a political favor. And Gordon Sondland had written back, you know, there's absolutely no quid pro quo. And it turns out the reason Gordon Sondland wrote that, he testified, was he had called the president. And the president had been in a very bad mood, had been very upset by the mere question if there had been a quid pro quo, and had told him repeatedly, no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. But what Gordon Sondland says is, what I know to be true is that the president told me there was no quid pro Hmm. quo. I don't know if— what the president said is actually the truth, but it is true that he said it. Hmm. So it's not particularly good for the president when one of your loyalists and allies is saying, you know, the president possibly lied to me, but I I was passing on this potential mistruth.
0: But I think what's really interesting about what we've seen after these testimonies is that the White House isn't saying, oh, well, none of this is true. A lot of what they're doing is saying, yeah, I mean, that was true, but that— is totally normal, or we intended to do that, or what they are accusing us of is not outside the bounds of what we should have been doing in the first place.
1: Absolutely. And the White House, their strategy has changed a bit. First, they said it was – or the president said it was the perfect call and totally appropriate, which not even his own aides believed. And then you had the president saying there was no quid pro quo and, you know, we did nothing wrong and this is absolutely our right to ask Ukraine to investigate corruption, which technically is their right to ask Ukraine to investigate corruption. The, the problem becomes when they were asking Ukraine – to investigate the Democrats and the DNC and to investigate Joe Biden. And many administrations have asked Ukraine to investigate corruption. But then you had Mick Mulvaney in a pretty problematic press conference say, well, of course there was a quid pro quo, and you guys just need to get over it. To be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the Democratic server Uh, happen as
0: well. We do do that all the time with foreign policy.
1: That's what happens. There's always politics in foreign policy. I have
0: news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. I'm talking to Mr. Carl.
1: He quickly realized, while he may have been speaking the truth, that was a very problematic truth to speak. And then he put out a statement claiming he never said what we all watched him on video say. So the White House story has been changing a ton, trying to respond to each new bit of information.
0: And I think what's also notable about the fact that the impeachment inquiry is really heating up right now is that this is also a time where President Trump is embattled on other fronts. Last week, he announced that he wanted to bring the G7 conference to his resort in Doral. He got a lot of flack for that. Over the weekend, he ended up announcing that that isn't going to happen anymore, that he heard the criticisms on that. And then we also have his decision-making on Syria, the fact that he pulled troops out of northern Syria, abandoning Kurdish allies there, and a lot of Republicans have been really outspoken about the fact that they disagreed with that decision. Mitt Romney made a speech on the Senate floor last week.
1: America has abandoned an ally. Adding insult to dishonor, the administration speaks cavalierly, even flippantly, even as our ally has suffered death and casualty. Their homes have been burned And their families have been torn apart.
0: Mitch McConnell had an op-ed in The Post that said that withdrawing from Syria is a grave mistake. So I think it's interesting that this is a time where President Trump is trying to get as much support from Republicans as he can. But at the same time, he's doing other things that Republicans have to kind of speak out against.
1: Yeah, the president right now is absolutely at the most vulnerable point in his presidency. He's facing an impeachment inquiry where he needs the support of every single Republican. And he's facing a kind of rare moment where he's doing things that Republicans find so egregious that they've really come out strongly against him. So there's Syria, there's Doral. It doesn't mean they're going to impeach him, but— This is all coming at a moment where, more than any other time in his presidency, he needs every single bit of Republican support that he can get. Because if and when the House votes to impeach him, and it looks like that is going to happen in a Democratic-controlled House, it gets kicked over to the Senate. The Senate can either convict or acquit. And in order to convict... 20 Republicans would have to join all the Democrats to do so. So the president cannot really afford any Republican defections. And again, you're not going to have Republicans voting to impeach the president just because they have a policy disagreement with him on Syria. But it does sort of create a bunch of little cracks in a wall that the president really can't allow to fall.
0: Ashley Parker is a White House reporter for The Post.